telling the organization that a change is coming, telling them how the change is going to positively impact them, and then telling them when it's going to happen, and then you know what the benefits are, and then sort of doing a look back when you're ready to show them, hey, remember how we said we were going to reduce cycle times, this is how we did it, because that will sort of help any of the detractors. So it's a process getting people yep. to accept change doesn't just happen at the end of a project, you really have to start thinking about it from the very beginning. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into Bite Size Law with Siddharth Menon. Today, I'm back with another episode. And on today's episode, we will be focusing on the topic of CLM. CLM, which is also known as Contract Lifecycle Management. As part of this topic, I had the opportunity to speak with Cami Paulson. Cami has been in the CLM world for more than 20 years. She is a podcast host. She's also a best-selling author. If you want to know more about CLM, if you want to consider CLM as a tool to streamline your contracting processes, I urge you to read Cami's book called CLM RX. And uh, on today's episode, we will be covering a lot of stuff within the CLM world, such as what CLM is all about, the implementation considerations, challenges, AI, and all those exciting topics. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to this one. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Hey, Cami, welcome to Bite Size Law. How are you? Hi, I'm so good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Cami, when I started this podcast, my main aim was to interview industry experts, especially in the legal tech community. So when I decided to have uh, the CLM-specific topic uh, for this podcast, I was adamant that I should have you because, you know, you're a CLM rock star. I'm proud to, you know, call you as my mentor because you're the one who actually... Because you're the one who actually brought me into the implementation world. and uh, Right? Are you sure that you want to thank me for that, Sid? I don't know if, if CLM implementations are anyone's very favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite challenging. And uh, challenging. Yeah. yeah, even one implementation project can actually make you feel that you're already an expert in CLM implementation, right? That's because true. <laughs> because yeah, of all true. the Because of all the challenges, you know, the issues that we run into. And also, you know, I'm a avid fan of your CLM, CLM RX podcast, um, as well as, you know, yeah. when I, whenever I want to brush up on my basics, especially in the implementation world, I run to the CLM RX book that you authored, which is, it's a treasure trove of all the information that all CLM pra- practitioners should keep in mind. So thank you for thank that, Gabby. Yes, you're welcome. I, my goal with both the podcast and the book was to educate. And uh, I think that we're all better the more we know in the space. And I mean that about practitioners. So the people that are doing the implementation, selling the software, but also the buyers, right? If you can be a more educated buyer, you can save yourself time. And so I appreciate what you're doing here with the legal technology that you're reviewing because educating your consumer is gold. So I'm excited to be here, Sid. I'm excited to talk to you about this today. And thanks for all the kind words. (laughs) Absolutely, Cami. Thank you for coming on. Cami, for all those listeners out here who do not know you, uh, especially people, you know, beyond the CLM world, would you mind providing a brief background about yourself, how your journey was within the CLM industry? 
Of course. So when I was in college, I was an English literature major and I got a job because I could write okay at a law firm. And I started writing legal briefs and doing research. And, you know, we took a liking to each other and they offered to pay for my post-baccalaureate schooling as a paralegal. And so I did that and I took some clients up and I, I did a lot of commercial and transactional support work for that law firm. And then I decided that I really wanted to continue working in the legal field, but I wanted to do it in a, in a transactional way for a legal tech company. I really wanted to focus in in-house work instead of a law firm. And so I made that jump and I, I supported an in-house sales team of an affiliate marketing company has been around for a long time, very well known, but they were pioneers in the space. And so there was a lot of precedents that had to be figured out and discovered. It was very fast moving and there weren't a, a lot of us that we were a small staff. And so because I was supporting sales and doing their commercial agreements and they were primarily living in Salesforce, I was always looking for ways to be more efficient with how I was returning their documents or redlining their documents or or even getting signature. And so yep. I started to look through due, due diligence in the CLM space because somebody had mentioned it to me. And at the time I was trying to build like access databases and I was trying to build workflows in Salesforce, but they just weren't quite making the cut for what I was looking for, which was really analytics around our contracting. When I was doing due diligence, I ran into a gentleman um, who's very well known in the CLM space named Jim O'Hare. And he told me, you should consider making the jump from being a paralegal to being an engagement manager or to working for a CLM provider because you really understand the job and what these people are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis because you're, you're living it. I thought, what in the world is this? I'm not technical. I don't like <laughs> Yeah. Like I'm a writer, like this is, does not sound fun at all to me until he told me that I could work from home. And I had just adopted my 15 year old at the time. Wow. And yeah. I thought that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, in my book, I tell, I, I actually, in my forward mentioned to my son, thank you. You're the reason that I got into this career in the first place, because I wanted to spend more time with him. I jumped into CLM, just excited. And, and it was really trial by fire. No one really trained me on how to take requirements or how to, you know, design a solution for a customer. I just listened primarily in my very beginning of my journey. I just listened to what customers were facing and nodded vigorously because I knew it. I was facing all those same things myself. And so my career grew from there because I became sort of a sought after consultant to help large companies figure out their sailing journey. And I worked for several other providers. So I worked at Selectica, Determine. Um, I worked at Isertis for a period, and I've worked with many of the, I'm sorry, I also worked with the IBM tool at Aforis. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And so I worked with many really large customers in the Fortune 100 space, advising them on how to to create a, a strategy for a full CLM implementation rollout for multinational, multi-geo enterprise implementations. And from there, I learned a tremendous amount about what not to do. <laughs> um, not to make mistakes, where not to spend time. And I learned a ton about what really makes an implementation successful. And so um, now, you know, in my career, I advise companies around that. I do, I don't m manage projects so much anymore as I, um, you know, I can be oversight on them or I really, I love strategizing with customers about what tool they should select and how mm -hmm. to approach it and how to roll it out. So one of my very favorite things to do these days is talk to customers about, you know, how do we deploy CLM? What tools do we think about? 
and just how to sort of map out that journey. One of my favorite things to do. So that's what I do now. And and being on podcasts and talking to different practitioners and customers in the space brings me a lot of joy because the challenges that I saw 20 years ago, yep. customers are still facing today, maybe just with a different set of policies or a different tech stack. So it rings true. That's actually fascinating, Gabby, because I, when you were talking about your journey, I was thinking back, you know, 10 years back when I started off my legal career, I st- started off as a litigator and I sort of serendipitously got into the CLM world. Mm-hmm. But at that time I was in India and there was this, I used to work for a company which focused on a legal process outsourcing. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at that time, CLM was basically a lot of lawyers opening up an Excel sheet, extracting clauses from contracts so that these Excel sheets could act as contract clause repositories so that right. in-house legal counsel could rely on, you know, these Excel sheets to ensure whether the clauses are up to date, you know, all the other compliance related things that they do. That's like the beginning of the playbook, Sid. Like <laughs> yeah. The playbook of negotiation. That seems like all in-house lawyers want, but nobody ever has the time to do. So I'm not surprised that, you know, starting your career, you were tasked with something like that. That's definitely rough work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and also at that time, I don't think I had any clue about CLM systems, especially in the last few years. CLM has definitely become the buzzword, right? You know, everyone wants to know about what CLM is and everything. Before we dive deep into the world of CLM implementation and CLM tools, would you mind providing a summary of what CLM tech is all about to all those listeners who do not know what CLM is? Yeah, so CLM is short for contract lifecycle management. And that can mean a that can sort of mean different things for different companies. But the idea is that your contract request, you know you're going to have to get a contract to establish a relationship with a a customer that you're talking to. And that request has to initiate somewhere. For many of us, that's just an email from our sales team that says, hey, I need a contract. Yep. But for others of us that are more technologically savvy, we've deployed CLM systems. And what those things do is that they can take the intake request and they they push the contract through an entire life cycle, ending with an executed document that you can mine data from. And so what it looks like is in a system, it can be the CLM system. It can be another system like Salesforce, because many of them integrate to your sales team's CRM, is that a request is initiated, a document is generated, it's negotiated, it's approved, and then it's managed within mm-hmm. these systems. And each one of the CLM systems or tools in the marketplace are all wonderful. They have very similar technology. Each one of them plays a little bit differently with use cases, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So it's a technology that has gotten a lot of funding in the last year. Mm-hmm. And that you'll see everywhere because you know there's a little bit of FOMO going on in that <laughs> if, you're, if you're trying to contract with somebody and they have CLM, then that GC is like, wait a minute. And we need CLM. Um, <laughs> but also within the, the economic environment and the actually, you know, it even started longer ago than that with the pandemic. Yep. And, yep. and I'll tell you why CLM kind of kicked off in the pandemic. And it was because we can't get wet signature and walk things around the office and use inner office memos in a pandemic. We have to have an electronic way to contract. And many organizations had adopted e-signature. And so that part of it was fine. We don't have to chase people around for a wet signature anymore. But managing 
the negotiation of the redlining of it, the approval of the terms was near impossible in the pandemic times. If you didn't have CLM, you're just relying on email threads. Yep. They're very difficult to manage. You know, CLM saw an upshot after the pandemic because they're, you know, in-house folks are looking for ways to manage that workflow. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you take uh, the pandemic happened and then you take the the economic environment we find ourselves in, which was there was, you know, the conflict with Ukraine. And so there were sanctions and and people needed to understand if if there were sanctions in their agreements. Yep. And so it became this like full on fire drill to try to find the terms in your agreement for things like force majeure. And can a pandemic mean that this contract is canceled? Yep. Or do we have sanctions that we are owed or that we owe? And so there was sort of a it was pandemonium a bit people trying to put their hands on this data and they didn't have a way to do it. And so CLM was an answer to the workflow issue and to the the data that they were looking for. And so you saw a big uptick in 2022 of folks buying CLM, but also new CLM tools popping up. So that's a bit of a history of it and sort of why you're hearing about it so much more. It's because there's been a lot of funding in this space, but there was also like a big need just in business in general, to have this kind of technology that could track the workflow and then more importantly, the data that's housed in those very rich contracts. That's really fascinating and interesting, right? Because back in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, I used to speak to my friends in the legal community, especially in-house counsels and general counsels. And the common theme amongst everyone was that they were scampering to find the force measure clauses in all their executed contracts. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to, to yeah, find. and then to define this is act of God a pandemic. Like there were lots of conversations around that whole force majeure clause during that time. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And that event probably pro- probably would have propelled them to find much more of a robust contract management system rather than filing all their contracts in their office cabinets. So, Oh, gosh. Yeah. Back in the day, I remember another reason that I wanted to have a CLM system is that I failed my first audit, the Sarbanes-Oxley audit, because we couldn't find, produce the documents for some of the records they were asking for. And uh, I'll never forget that. If you've ever been through a scenario where it's your job to locate the data... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you can't locate the data. And then your company will experience, you know, a Sarbanes-Oxley failure is not a pretty thing. And so I, I'll never forget that that's, that was an impetus for me to, to sort of never be blindsided that way again. Mm-hmm. And it's it's why I'm so passionate about helping customers stand up CLM or at least, you know, a repository at the very basic so that they can not be in that predicament because it's painful. Yep, absolutely. So, Cami, uh, how would you, when a client has selected a CLM vendor already and they want an implementation partner to implement the CLM software, so how would you guide them in the implementation process? You know, what kind of things would you tell them to ensure that they are set up for success and uh, that the implementation is not a failure? Yeah, that's a loaded question, Sid, because of this reason. I wish that I could wave a magic wand and and make sure that everyone chose their implementation partner before they chose their CLM vendor. (laughs) And I know that that hardly ever happens, but let me tell you why. An experienced CLM implementation partner can help you get ready for your CLM implementation and sort of give you all the homework that you would need 
for two reasons. One, to make the right selection of your mm-hmm. CLM tool and then to save yourself money. So what often happens is a committee is formed, legal may or may not be involved in it, and they go out to RFP. They ask all the wrong questions because all the vendors are going to say, yes, we have that functionality. And they have really no, nothing except maybe they liked the people that sold them the tool and they liked the way it looked and they bought it and now they're ready to implement. Yep. And then they talk to an implementation partner and they find out that there's a, you know, could be three X cost to mm-hmm. implement this tool. And then they find out that there's all this readiness that they have to get ready for. And that, you know, because they haven't done it, it's going to be six months before we can even start to build anything. They're panicked because they thought it was going to take eight months and they would have a full CLM system set up. So I load my answer with that because in the ideal world, you have engaged with a partner or you've sought out some resources before you buy the tech because the tech should be the last thing you buy and where you should start is with getting ready. And a good partner can help you with that. Now, when you're looking for partners to help implement, there's ways that you can figure out who to select. You can go to the the website of the tool you're considering and look in their partners page and you'll see a list of partners that they work with. And then you can interview them and find out if they're a fit. But the things that you need to ask them are, do they have experience implementing the tool that you're thinking about? Do they have an opinion on the tool that you're thinking about? How long do they think that it would take based on the requirements as you've given them? If they can tell you that information with a straight face, I I may consider running the other way (laughs) (laughs) because it's very hard to estimate a timeline for a project until you have requirements Yep. and then find out where they're located. So, you know, I do a lot of implementations with Elevate and they've got staff that are in both Poland, they have so European staffing, and then they have staffing in India. And that's important for cost, right? Because we can offset the cost of maybe US resources with some less expensive resources that can do the majority of the build work around the clock and then in in other areas that keep the hourly rate lower. So there's a lot of considerations around a partner. I think the top ones are that they have experience in the tool that you're considering Mm -hmm. and they have resources and time zone that meet your preference and that they can provide references, which is a really hard thing to do in this market, or at least give you some customers that that they have implemented with and get their experience before you make a decision. So I think those three things are pretty key. Yep, absolutely. As an implementation partner, Cami, like you rightly pointed out, you know, sometimes the tech is not the you know end solution for all your contract related problems, right? Mm-hmm. You, right. you as a customer, you also need to be ready to embrace the technology. When I say ready, I don't mean financially or you know mentally ready to embrace technology, but <laughs> but ready with your documenting processes, you know existing contract types. What do you want to in- implement? What kind of contract types do you want to implement? So if you have to advise a customer and help them be prepared with their readiness assessment, what are the kind of things that you would? tell them so that the client knows beforehand that they need to be prepared with you know certain things before the implementation takes place. Yeah, there's a couple of key things that you should know. The cost drivers are important to know. So cost drivers for an implementation are how many contract workflows you're going to want the team to deliver, what your legacy documents look like, and by that I mean repository, it's we were just talking about this, are they in desk drawers or are they digital? Yep. And then the other thing that's a cost driver are 
I said, legacy contract documents, and then how many integrations you want. So if you're planning on integrating with Salesforce, that's pretty standard. If you're planning on integrating with a homegrown system, that can be more expensive. So those three bucketed areas, you need to have a good understanding of. Mm -hmm. And then, then sort of once you understand the integrations, where your legacy data is and what the number of legacy data documents are, and then which contract types you want to work with, the next thing that you really need to focus on are the, the people and processes associated with those contract types. So for example, I often like to start with either an NDA or a relatively a straightforward agreement like an MSA so that you can get a quick win. But what you're going to need to do is synthesize down your 900 versions of the MSA into the best version that you want to start with to build your tool. So getting a hold of all of the templates that you think you want to work with and then making sure they're harmonized or synthesized or you've boiled it down to one or two of them that you're going to work with will save you an inordinate amount of time and money in the implementation. So understanding that. And then understanding that the process is very important because of a couple of reasons, and that is procurement contracts differently than sales and HR. They all contract differently and probably use different tools. So understanding where is the starting point for sales and where is the starting point for procurement and where is the starting point for finance, for example, when they're contracting all the way through to execution and where that document ends up. Mm -hmm. is imperative to understand because your implementation partner is then going to take that information to design a solution for you. And we're going to look at uh, automation opportunities and integration opportunities. So for example, if your sales team is living in Salesforce, you want them to stay in Salesforce and you want the executed document to go back into the repository, but you want to copy in Salesforce, that's a common workflow. But understanding that upfront, that's the wish or that's what you're doing now and you want to automate that where you can, um, having being armed with that information as you walk into requirements gathering will save you weeks of yep. time, weeks of time. So I say, get your documents ready, understand which contract types you want to start with and make sure that the language and they're as clean as possible. And then looking at your process from end to end and documenting it is it is so helpful. I cannot stress this enough to your implementation team and the CLM vendor you're choosing for you to document that process. And it doesn't have to be beautiful in Lucidchart or Visio. It can be a whiteboard you've taken a picture of. We just need to get a general understanding of how the contract document starts and where it ends. Yep. So process is important. And then understanding in that process what people are touching the document is helpful for licensing because you're going to need to figure out your license structure with the vendor, but also where in the workflow those people will touch so that you understand your security sort of outline within the tool. Like my name's Cami, I can only generate contracts for North America and I can't generate an MSA for UK, so I don't have access to that in the system. So that's kind of another big chunk is trying to understand who can touch what when, and that's a process people discussion. So if you can spend time up front gathering the information about where your legacy documents are and what state they're in and what the number of them are, what the processes are, the current contracting processes for those agreements, which templates you want to start with with the implementation, and then the process, as I said, and the people and how it, they touch it. If you can gather that information walking into a vendor selection, a discussion, or requirements gathering with your vendor of choice to implement, you are by and away ahead of the game. 
and this will save you time and money. So those are the areas that I would focus on. Um, oh, and yeah. I mentioned them in my book in more detail, if that's oh. helpful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would definitely urge all the listeners to read CLMRX because it's one of a kind book, right? In the sense, I've been in the implementation world for almost a couple of years, but whenever I want to go to go back to my basics and get a rough layout of all the things that I should consider while talking to my clients, I definitely read that book. I've already read it a couple of times. And oh, God, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, readiness is highly key, especially, you know, when I used to project manage implementation related work, uh, a lot of customers were not ready. They didn't realize the implications that a lack of readiness would have to the overall timeline of the project. And right. what what happens eventually is that during the discovery workshop sessions, we sit there collectively and figure out what their existing processes are. That sort of increases the timeline by many fold in the sense if you're looking at an implementation timeline of six months, it roughly stretches up to six to 12 months. And what exactly. happens? Yeah, what happens at the end? You know, you have a lot of customers who are disgruntled. So yes, it is very important that customers are ready or conducts a readiness assessment before, you know, they jump into the discovery workshops and requirement gatherings and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's so imperative. I mean, the amount of time and money that has been wasted in customers not being ready and coming to phone calls that are billable, by the way, with multiple resources and experts on the phone with you saying, hey, I don't know, Sid, what do you think? Where does the contract start? Yeah. That's in some cases a $400 an hour phone call. You know, yep. and so that's a, it's an enormous waste of your budget for services. So something else that I didn't mention when you're looking at partners, if you know that you're not ready, but you know that you have impending deadlines that you have to, you for example, if you're sunsetting a tool and you've got to get another one up, uh, there are partners out there that do readiness assessments that can help you with vendor selection, that can help you organize this because it really is a mini project in and of itself getting ready. There, so, you know, I would look for readiness engagements or readiness. There are folks in the industry that do that for a living and can help you, you know, make sure it's good money spent because typically what happens is after you can use a lot of that information to inform the requirements and you sort of get, you kind of cut out the discovery phase of a, right. of a requirements gathering session. So it pays for itself, but that's just an option when looking at partners. Yeah, I 100% agree. You might as well spend a lot of time doing that back-end work so that you have a seamless implementation experience. So, uh, Cami, moving forward, so there are so many CLM vendors out there, like CLM tools, you know, yes. big names, which are listed in the Gardner report. So how would okay. one choose the right CLM vendor? We spoke about choosing the right CLM implementation partner, but, you know, mm -hmm. how do you choose the right CLM tool? Yeah, I get asked that question all the time. And that I'm going to give you a very lawyerly answer, which is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it depends because every CLM system that's out there has pros and cons. And every one of them are wonderful. The people that work there are wonderful. The teams that you get to work with are wonderful. But what it really comes down to is, will it fit your use case and your culture? So when you're looking at tools in the market, it's important to talk to other users. I think user conferences are important. Uh, you know, you can get a ton of information from Clock, World CC, Legal Geek, and Legal Week. Like you can just network and talk to other people that are using tools and find out their experience and what they're using. That's uh, one way. 
is yep. just uh, your network. And then also looking at, you know, what's tough for someone that's buying tech is you can give an RFP and it can say it needs to redline and it needs to do this and it needs to, I need to be able to search a repository and it needs to send notifications. And you're going to get a yes from every single vendor. Yes, it does all those things. Every single one of them does. The question is how, how do you do it or what does it look like? And you can't get that answer from an RFP. So it's really hard to select, but I'll give you sort of some top things to think about. Find out how difficult or how long it'll take to implement. Sometimes sales users will say, you know, we're better focused in large enterprise customers. And we know that um, the spend is going to be significant on this implementation. Customize a lot of what you're building. We can build to suit your workflow. There are large tools out there that are heavy hardware that are for that kind of use case that want to have an enterprise and they want to have, they have complexity and they want a vendor that can handle complexity. There are other use cases where it's just maybe a legal team and a sales team. They're already using Salesforce as their CRM and they want something that integrates well with that. So I would look up, talk to the vendors that have a very strong Salesforce integration. It could be that your team uses primarily Macs or they use a lot of G Suite and they don't really use Microsoft. And then you would want to look for organizations that cater to that. So just for a couple of examples, calling out vendors like Ironclad, who has a very robust collaboration functionality in their redlining tool. If it's primarily a legal team and, and they spend a lot of time redlining, maybe that meets their use case very well. Mm-hmm. And maybe they also have procurement and they use Coupa and Ironclad has a strong Coupa integration. And you're like, okay, well, that's that's already starting to feel like it's meeting some of my requirements for my use cases. So it's really not about can it redline? Does it do notifications? Can it do approvals? It's more looking at your your company's process again and the technology they're currently using and how things are implemented. So if there's a heavy Salesforce presence, maybe it's a Conga or maybe it's a DocuSign. Your sellers are the ones that need help. Or if it's a small legal department, maybe you need a, like a less robust tool and you're not going to look at a nice Certus, which is big enterprise software. You want to look at something that's a smaller tool. So really the reason why it depends is because all of the CLM tools are great. Some of them just play in a better scenario than others do. Yep. And again, you know, if you're just at a point where you've talked to all your references and you've done demos and you're still confused, there are consultants out there that can help you do vendor selection and they can narrow the playing field based on a, an assessment of your technology and your requirements. So again, you can find partners that'll help you with that if you're still stuck. But I think the best thing to do is just have conversations, reach out to people, experts in the industry, listen to podcasts and figure out like where you know, where are the top three? And I wouldn't look at more than three because by the time you look at five, you'll think they're all the same tool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 You'll have the tendency to get confused for sure. You'll get confused. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, that was, that was a roundabout answer, but there's no bad CLM. There's just better CLMs for certain use cases. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I 100% agree because you can't have a one-size-fits-all attitude, especially when it comes to, you know, looking for a CLM vendor. Thank you for that. Exactly. Yes. Going back to post-implementation, how important is it to have a change management team or a change management process so that the customer gets the, you know, gets all the benefits from the CLM tool that they implemented? 
So it's very you- important. Very, very important. It's not just change management, but it's post-account ownership. So you'll need to have somebody in the organization that's the champion and owner. And by owner, I mean the person who's either going to get trained to administer the tool, who's going to be in charge of helping with template updates or password reset. Like there is some post-implementation administration. There are companies that offer managed services for that if it's necessary. But for the most part, like you can have somebody administer the tool from that perspective. Change management doesn't just happen at the end of the project. It should be happening at the beginning. Communicating that a change is coming, asking for stakeholders that are interested in being a part of the either the selection process or the implementation team, involving stakeholders that touch the contracting process to be champions for you, and then talking about your communication strategy and, and understanding that your organization may digest data in different ways. So it could be that an email from, you know, the GC is sufficient, or it could be that you need to insert some video clips of what's coming in the software, demo clips, or you know how your organization digests information the best. And sometimes it can be a little bit of all of those things, but it's essentially telling the organization that a change is coming, telling them how the change is going to positively impact them, and then telling them when it's going to happen. And then, you know, what the benefits are and then sort of doing a look back when you're ready to show them, hey, remember how we said we were going to reduce cycle times? This is how we did it, because that will sort of help any of the detractors. So it's a process getting people to accept change doesn't just happen at the end of a project. You really have to start thinking about it from the very beginning. Yep, absolutely. No tech talk is complete without talking about AI. So especially with, you know, chat GPT blowing up so much in the sense it is important that, you know, uh, it is important to acknowledge that everyone's interested in AI these days. Yes. So do you see major CLM vendors rolling out AI capabilities? I know the few CLM vendors already have uh, sort of AI capability, but do you see a lot of research and development going on to beef up their AI capability? Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, I'm working on a a series on AI that's coming out soon because AI feels scary right now. And it's probably because it's the first time that we've ever been able to interact with it in the way that we have with ChatGPT. So that's why it's blowing up, right? But AI has been around since the 50s and we've incorporated it in many different ways. So if you think about Siri, that's voice recognition and then providing answer back to you. You know, there's various components of, of AI, which is machine learning and, and computer visualization. And there's a lot of different components to it that are already there, to be honest with you. Predictive text is a form of AI, and it's, yep. it's in many of the CLM tools and many of the other tools that we use in the market. And so we just haven't, as consumers, understood necessarily that AI has been there all along. So now what we're seeing visually and having the ability to interact with AI like we've never done before, it seems like it's a new boom. It's not really a new boom. It's just a new way of us interacting with AI that can be layered into existing tools. And so to answer your question about the vendors deploying AI, there are already vendors that are deploying chat GPT as what what we're sort of seeing as the AI boom. And what that means is things like being able to look in your repository data in a conversational style with chat GPT, rather than having to enter parameters like you do when you're looking for a transaction in your checking account. Yep. So it's just a different way of interacting with the tool. You know, there's ways that vendors are using 
or redlining, calling out redlining and drafting documents. So it's a it's a way to augment the administrative component of using these tools. But we will not move away from human in the loop. I don't see that happening. I don't see it. You know, we're not going to have massive layoffs in the legal industry. (laughs) What it does give us is the ability to focus on the high value tasks that legal professionals were trained to do and move away from the administrative minutiae. So I'm a fan of regulated AI with use in these tools. I think it can only help us and we should be open-minded about it. Yeah, absolutely. I also 100% agree because AI or any tech is an enabler, right? To make your work much more faster and easier. Uh, But like you said, definitely, I don't think AI has reached that point where it can replace human beings. No. So our smiles are much better. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Kami, do you see in the next 10 years, if you look at the future of CLM, do you see CLM tech as CLM technology to be used ubiquitously in every operation or in every organization? Is it going to be commonly found? Do you see that as a future? Yeah, I think it will be. But what I think will happen in the next 10 years is that CLM will become more of like an application or a middleware component where your users will not have to have credentials to log into an actual another application called CLM or whatever it is. You'll live in your native application and the integration and automation capability will allow us to interact with contract documents, redlining, and document management in a way that is seamless. So I that's where I see CLM fitting is that it'll be a piece that we don't even have to log into or know that's there. It's just a, it's a part of the workflow and we're using it as middleware. That's where I think we're going. I'll be excited if we get there. Yep. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So Kavi, I know you are really busy. Maybe it's time for us to wrap up. I know that you have another call to jump on to, but before we leave, uh, where can listeners reach out to you, Kavi? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I share a lot of content there on my personal page, which is Cammy Paulson. I also have LinkedIn page for the CLMRX, which is my podcast and my book. Uh, we have a YouTube channel where I put a lot of the video versions of the podcasts there. So you can watch video if you prefer. And then we have our podcast on a, on any of the streaming places you're used to, like Apple or Spotify. So if you want to reach out to me directly, you can set up uh, meeting times with me through my LinkedIn. I'm happy to always happy to chat. You can look at my featured section of my um, LinkedIn profile. Otherwise, you can reach out to me in any of the in any of the platforms. We would love it if you would like, follow, and share the podcast and the vodcast because more liking and sharing means we get better guests, as you know. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) And once again, thank you so much, Kami. It was a pleasure talking to you as always. I hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you invited me on. This has been a blast. So thank you so much. And and we'll have you on the CLMRX next. Absolutely. I'll be honored. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh.